0: Um, so we're, we're in week, what is this, four? We're in week four of uh, our series in Jonah. My hope has been uh, throughout this series that we would see God's word a little differently than we may have in the past. If you're not a Christian, my hope is that you've seen that the Bible is very honest with us about the failures of Christians and the grace of God to meet us in those failures. If you are a Christian, I hope you've had some of your own blind spots revealed. Maybe even seeing how gracious God is with you when you cover over your disobedience with religious piety like Jonah did last week. Because we do that. This week, we find a new beginning. A reset, if you will, in Jonah's life and in this story in particular. Uh, And and we find ourselves back wondering, how is Jonah going to react? And what's God up to with the city that he wants Jonah to visit? All these things begin to reveal themselves this week. So if you have your place... In Jonah chapter 3, our habit here is to stand, so if you'd stand in honor of God's Word, we're going to be reading the whole chapter. Ha! Don't panic. It's only ten verses. This is God's Word to us. Then the Word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out to it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the Word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. And Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. And when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way... God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. This is God's word given so that we might flourish. Would you pray with me? Lord, all of us in this room, to some degree or another, uh, need your mercy and don't want it. And so we ask that you would provide it for us. And that you would open our hearts to it. That we would not only uh, want it, but seek it. And that you, O God, would be gracious to give it. Help us see our need and your great provision, both shown to us in this passage. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Have a seat. Please. In 2003, uh, Jim Carrey starred in a movie called Bruce Almighty. I'm not sure I can recommend it, but it is really funny. Um, so if you go and watch it, you like, well, Preacher said... Duh, duh, I, I didn't say go watch it. I just said it was really funny. That's all I'm saying. Uh, but the premise by the movie is this. Uh, Morgan Freeman plays uh, God, and God meets this guy named Bruce, decides to give Bruce his powers for a time. Which, of course, is, you know... High uh, hijinks ensue and blah, 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 which Bruce thinks he's going to do great with. I think we all think we would do great with until finally he ends up uh, surrendering to God and getting hit by a bus. Uh, but that's neither here nor there. The, the point is this. The idea of us getting God's powers and prerogatives sounds really cool, doesn't it? Because I think at root, we all think we'd make pretty good gods. We tend to think we know how things should go. Uh, I I tend to think I know how justice should be done. Normally that's because I've forgotten how I deserve justice. I I think I understand how blessings should be doled out, often because I truly believe that most of the stuff that I have, I worked really hard for. And so, deserve. Right? Right? This week uh, sets the stage for Jonah's wrestling in this exact same way in the last two weeks. It sets the stage. Like I said, it's a reset. But in it, something dramatic happens. Something unexpected happens, as we've been seeing week after week after week. And sets the stage for Jonah's wrestling with what he thinks should, God should do. Because this week gives us a very unexpected repentance. So if you, if you have that outline that's in your bulletin, if that's helpful for you, I know you're stunned. This is so shocking to you. There are three points we're going to be going through. Uh, we're going to be looking at an unexpected chance, an unexpected response, and then we're going to see how we can expect more. Okay? Now, before we get to the passage and dive into this, let me remind us where we're at. You remember last week, Jonah... Is uh, you know praying in the belly of the fish, and God thought so much of that prayer that He had the fish puke Him out on shore. Um, I've I've heard from several of you who who um, who have told me that that would kind of that kind of shook you a little bit because you had fallen into that children's Bible picture of Jonah as the pious saint praying on the tongue uh, and then walking joyously off because God so loved His prayer of repentance, but God didn't because it wasn't. Right, that, that, that prayer wasn't, in fact, a prayer of repentance. It was Jonah thanking God that Jonah was so great. And so God had the fish puke him. Uh, Jonah had responded completely different than how we'd expect. And today we get to see the same thing with two other parties. Uh, let's look down first as we see the unexpected chance. It's, it says this. The word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. Now. If if you're a student in the Old Testament, and I know most of us, look, even as Christians, the Old Testament is not what we tend to read. Maybe we do like Isaiah, the latter chapters of Isaiah, and some of us read the first few stuff of Genesis, but eh, the Old Testament, right? But if if, if you're a student at all of the Old Testament, the idea of the word of the Lord coming to Jonah again a second time or coming again should be jarring because Jonah is the only prophet in the Old Testament that gets a second chance. There are other prophets who disobey God. There there are not many, but there are a couple. And every time that happens, you see a swift judgment come upon them. Now, I'm going to speculate here for a second because the the Bible doesn't tell us this, but I think it's a, a good inference to make. I think Jonah was counting on that. I think he was counting on the fact that God would judge him quickly because he would rather be judged... Than to share God's heart for his enemies. God tells him to go to Nineveh, and he doesn't because he would rather be judged. But now the word of the Lord is coming a second time. So let's keep going. God says this Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city. Call out to it the message that I tell you. Now, if if you were here a few weeks ago when we started this series, that that sentence should sound familiar because it's almost identical to the the call that God put on Jonah right at the beginning in verse 2 of chapter 1, but with two main differences. Let me hit the last of those first. In, in, In the first call that God put on Jonah, he described to Jonah why he was doing this, why he was to go. Because he said, the, the evil or the trouble of the Ninevites has risen up before me. This time, he simply tells Jonah, I'm going to tell you what to say, and you better say it exactly the way I say it. God's in charge of the message. That's really important, especially as we get into the later part of this chapter. But second, and some of our, some of our Bible translations make this difficult to see, including the ESV. We shifted a little bit, uh, but... In the first call, God calls Jonah to go cry out against Nineveh. But here in this one, he's called to go cry out to Nineveh. And you're like, Rick, come on, it's a preposition. How much difference can that make? Actually, it makes a ton. Now, uh, some of our translations, like I said, don't note that difference. The ESV is one of them. Uh, If you're reading along in the ESV, which is our normal translation here, it said against. I'm not going to go into all the reasons why there's that difference, except to say that most most scholars agree it should say to and not against. Uh, But why does that matter? I'm glad you asked. Here's why that matters. Crying out against something gives the connotation that judgment is imminent and unavoidable. The judgment is imminent and unavoidable. For instance, when I, uh, when I was an undergraduate at James Madison, uh, right up the street, um, and some of you who went to JMU will remember this, it was like a yearly occurrence. Sometime in the spring when it was warm outside, this dude showed up on campus, parked himself right outside a D Hall, literally had a soapbox, would stand on it, and would rail at every student that went by because of their ungodliness. Right? Whether it was the men were too effeminate, or uh, the women dressed too provocatively, or someone had a tattoo, or someone had earrings. There, never was there a message of any sense of God, is, God cares for you. It was always just, you're bad, you're bad, you're bad. He was crying out against JMU students. All right? Wagging his finger Crying out to is different. It may have some similar content, but the purpose is different. To cry out to someone is to elicit a response, to draw a response out of them. And that is what Jonah is sent to Nineveh to do. Now, let's look at how that played out in verses 3 to 4, right? So Jonah rose, went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord, which is to say Jonah has apparently resigned himself that he can't avoid this. And it says, now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breath. Now, I'll stop there for a second. That is a very interpretive translation. And if, if, if as you're reading your Bibles, I would, I would want us to know that when you, maybe, maybe you're someone who does Bible studies and you have a couple of different translations and sometimes they're really different. And you're like, why are these so different? Can I trust them? Of course you can. But all translation to some degree has a little bit of interpretation in it. And this is one of those places What we translate exceedingly great, that Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, that is what it could mean. It could mean it was just really, really big, but literally it means great to God. Now, could it mean really big? Yes, it could mean it's God-sized. But it could also mean that it's really important to God. It could also mean it's a city that belongs to God. Now, we'll get to that, I think. Come back in, in uh, a couple weeks, and we'll see exactly how that plays out a little later. So, why does this matter? Why, do, why does it matter if, if this phrase actually means all three of these, which I think it does? Think with me. To Jonah, right? Jonah loves the idea of preaching God's mercy. The only other place we have in the Old Testament where it talks about Jonah, he's, in fact, doing that. He's preaching God's mercy, but he likes to preach it only to God's people. It's these other people, these enemies of God, those that are outside of his promises. We can't have mercy for them. He declares God to be God over all things. He's the the supreme God. Remember that from a few weeks ago? But he acts as if he's regional. He's only our God. He's supposed to be ours. God says, ah, this is my city, this city that you hate so much. And at the same time, here's a city full of people who have never heard of God, ever. Uh, who think that they are their own authority, right? But we're told this city is God's city. That it's important to God. Think about that. Especially if you were raised in the church. I want you to think about this. Here is a city filled with not a single believer. Not one Right? If you're familiar with Old Testament stories, if Abraham's doing negotiations with God about this city, nothing. Not a single believer. God says, that's important to me. That's mine. Hmm. Like I said, come back in a couple weeks. We're going to flesh that out. The statement that, that the, the, the city was three days journey in breadth is also an interpretation. It doesn't say that. Okay, It doesn't actually say literally it's three days wide. Um, what what that probably means like look for a city to be three days wide in the ancient world meant that it was like 50 miles across the ancient city of Nineveh was not 50 miles across. Okay, that's huge, right? It was about three miles across, which was really big back in the day. So what that probably meant was it was a three days journey for Jonah to actually do his preaching circuit. Uh, He had a three day journey to go around and preach what he was going to preach throughout the city so that all of the city got reached because Jonah has to get to all of it to make sure it gets reached, right? Except that he doesn't. He doesn't have time to. It happens too quickly. Uh, But we'll get to that in a second. Let's look at what he's preaching. Look at verse 4. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. One day. One day. He's gone one day. And he called out, yet 40 days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. Now, as you hear that, some of you are thinking, like, Rick, you said that thing about against versus two, but this sounds an awful lot like against to me. Yeah, it does to me, too. But the issue is is the intention behind it. And the intention can be seen in that word overthrown, right? So in in the original, that word overthrown can mean destroyed, which is what we all seem to intuit that that means. It means destroyed. But it can also mean, and note this, if you're you're taking notes, this is where you want to take it. It can also mean turned on its head, turned upside down, reformed. There's some ambiguity there, right? Right? That ambiguity is what makes all the difference between something being called out against and something being called out to. There's ambiguity. Now, before I want to get to the response of the people, which is kind of the highlight of this passage, I want to press a little into this place that Jonah is preaching. Because I think we tend to hear this City, and we, we kind of get this mindset that what we're dealing with here is really more or less a really kind of tolerant, peaceful place. It's kind of a liberal democracy, and everyone's kind of secular West ish when we come into the, the city of Nineveh, but that is not what's happening. Nineveh was known as a city of violence. This is the capital of a totalitarian, um, highly aggressive, militaristic state. It's known for its social injustice. Right? The rich exploit the poor without pause because who cares? They worship a goddess by the name of Ishtar, which is a great name. She was the goddess of both sex and war, so everybody was happy, right? Like she this is this they are a city full of bloodshed. These are not noble people. This is the last place that one would expect to find God's prophet. Better yet, the last place for one to expect God to say, you see that city right there? Mm, That's mine. Destroy? Yes. Now, we could see that. For God to care for it? Mm, I don't think so. And that's what makes what happens next so unexpected. Let's look at those unexpected responses first to the people. Uh, in verses 5 to 9, it says, And the people of Nineveh believed God. What? Wow. Like, what? Jonah is walking around giving the worst gospel presentation ever. And all of a sudden people believe. And when it says they believed God, that's the same word. If you were were an ancient Israelite and you're reading this or hearing this for the first time, what's going to be striking to you is he uses the same word there that that is used in Genesis 15 when it says Abraham believed God. It's the exact same word. And you're like, what? What are you talking about? What do you mean they believed God? Here's the other thing that's interesting. The people start this movement. Like, Jonah's supposed to go around three days. He's supposed to get all the way around the city, make sure everything's covered. Within a day, the people, not the king, the people begin to repent. And it spreads like wildfire throughout the whole city. So that, by the end of it, they're they're calling for a fast. They're putting on burlap PJs. And they're sitting down in, in ashes. Which is weird, okay? But here's, here's what that is, okay? So in the ancient world, this is how you would show that you were sorry. It's how you grieved. Sackcloth and ashes. That's weird, right? That's weird to us. Culturally, it was normal to them. It was a cultural expression. They were a very expressive culture. We are not, Right? Like, when, when, when we're talking about things like majority culture in our country is highly unexpressive. It's why most, most folks from, from other cultures um, and even minority cultures in our community, if they come into a church full of white folks, they wonder whether or not we believe anything that we say because we go, Mm. Like, that, that our most expressive thing is, Mm-hmm. Like, that's as expressive as we get, right? They're an expressive culture. You put on, you're sorry for something, you change your clothes, scratchy PJs, you sit down in some ashes. The important thing to see here, apart from the weirdness of that to us, is that this is universal. Like, everybody's doing this. Everybody. And what's more, like I said, it happens after the first day of Jonah's preaching. Jonah was supposed to be in control of how this works. He's going about the city. He's going to preach this message. Maybe a couple of people get on board. But all of a sudden, it spreads like wildfire. And then we have this stuff from the king. So here's what's weird about the stuff from the king. You notice he issues a decree, right? He says, hey, everybody, uh, don't eat anything, which is a fast, and uh, put on sackcloth and sit in ashes. What's the weird thing about that? They were already doing it. Like, they're already doing it. Now, here's why this would be striking. To us, that's not striking. Uh, because we're used to um, megalomaniac uh, government officials uh, calling for things that are already happening. But in, in their day, the, why this was weird was that um, the king is the head of not just the government, but he's the head of religion. And so, it was his job to call, on, to call for things like fasts. It was his job to call for things like uh, repentance. That was his job. But it's outpacing him. Everybody's already planted themselves in ashes. Everybody's already gotten all itchy in their burlap. And in the ancient Near East, this is weird. He's out of control of the religious expression of his people. Completely out of control. So Jonah's not in control. The message moves faster than him. The king isn't in control. He decrees things after they've already taken over. And there's one more thing about this that's really weird. Because the king calls, at the end of his, his uh, call for repentance, he says, let everyone turn away from his violence and the evil that he's done. Right? Here's why this is weird. In pagan religions, morality does not compute. In the ancient Near East, your morality had nothing to do with your, your religious convictions. The gods didn't really care about what you did. The gods only cared about how you served them. In other words, whether you brought them sacrifices, because apparently they can't go hunt and grow food for themselves. They need you to come and feed them. And if you feed them, maybe they'll be good to you and do something right. But here this king gets the idea, what we've done has caused a problem, and we need to change it. And then he follows it up with this phrase. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Remember that ambiguity that I was talking about with the word overthrown? That's what he's clinging to here. This ambiguity. In a sense, he's saying, we deserve to get it. But maybe, just maybe, God's going to be merciful. And that's crazy enough. I mean, I want you to think for a minute. You are going as a missionary to ISIS-controlled territory. Which, in fact, this is right? Nineveh is in ISIS-controlled territory. So you're going to ISIS-controlled territory, walking around the whatever, you know, city is, is considered like one of their central points, and you're starting to talk to them about how, how their city's going to be overthrown. All of a sudden, all of them son- suddenly repent. Every one of them. That's crazy enough. This next verse is crazier. Look at God's response. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. If that is not nuts to you, my guess is that you don't understand what just happened. Because it's easy for us as Christians to read this and go, A revival broke out! Like, some." Wide scale, massive conversion of the entire population of the city. Except that it didn't. No one was converted. Here's how we know first, from the text. If you look at every time Jonah talks about God, every time Jonah and God are interacting, it uses the word Lord, right? In all capital letters. Some of you have been here, you you remember when I've talked about that? The word Lord, in all capital letters, is a way of translating the name Yahweh. And Yahweh is the name of God given to his people that speaks to his covenant promise to make things right. Those who are under the promise call God Yahweh. All of them. But every time in this passage where it talks about the Ninevites in reaction to God, it doesn't use the word Lord. It uses the word God, which is not Yahweh. It's the word Elohim, which is is a generic name for deities, which could have been used for Yahweh or Ishtar or Baal or someone named Elohim. It is always a generic word. These folks do not know God as the Lord. It's just God. But the second reason that we know this didn't happen is from history. Because there is no evidence in any Assyrian records of anyone ever worshiping the God of the Bible. Ever. So listen to me. God relented of the disaster he was going to bring on Nineveh. Not because they were converted, but because they repented just a little bit. What do you think about that? What kind of God is that? What kind of God is it? That is okay with, like, who is looking for reasons to have mercy on people. That even when they, they're like, I still don't know what I think about you, but I'm willing to kind of pause on these behaviors that you think are, are uh, hurting your good creation. And he goes, thank you. All right, we're good. We're good now. I mean, we're not perfect, but it's better than it was. I'm not going to destroy you. What kind of God is that? Is that how you would be? I mean, I think most of us read this and think God has been manipulated, right? Man, did they play him. Sucker. They got him. But think with me. Everything in this passage takes the control away from the normal power players. The prophet doesn't even make his way around the city before everything kind of catches on and everybody's suddenly sitting in ashes. The king who's normally in charge of these things is rushing to catch up with the people who are already doing it. The the control is out of the normal power player's hands. The entire point is that God sent his prophet to Nineveh because he wanted to sovereignly show mercy. He is in control. So what Jonah said in the verse right before our passage, that salvation belongs to the Lord, it's true. It's absolutely true. And God will have mercy on whom he will have mercy even if it's not done the way we think it should be done. It is his to give out, and he is doing so. So in light of that, let me speak in a more applied way, if I can, first with receiving mercy. This passage is important because it helps us understand that we can't manipulate God. And, and some, of us, some of us would never presume to manipulate God. However, <laughs> all of us do it. And here's why. Because none of us really think that we actually need mercy. I mean, not really, because we're all pretty good folks. But like, mercy, we either think, we don't need it because we do okay, or we can't get it because we're too far from it. But never do we think mercy is mine. And so because of that, we tend to manipulate, try and manipulate God's judgment, right? So jo- Jonah tried to do that when he ran from God so that God wouldn't, would not judge him instead of giving mercy to Nineveh. The king, the king tried to manipulate to some degree, hoping his actions would bring about mercy, even though that mercy was already being extended to him. We do it, and we can see it most, primarily when we blow it. Because if you're anything like me, and I think we probably are alike in some of this way, you're going to see that you try to manipulate God when you blow it, and then you're trying to negotiate how to get back in his good graces. Right? How much do I have to do? How, How much obedience do I need? How many promises that it'll never happen again, it'll always be better? Um, how long until I feel like I can come into his presence? How do I show God how sorry I really am? See, so we're not willing to be forgiven until we've shown how much we understand our own brokenness. And like I said, some of us have just long ago given up on the idea of mercy. We listen to the king's who knows, and we go, I mean, I know, there's no way, there's no chance. So we just kind of given up. But what we see here is a God who is eager to show mercy. Listen to me. I know that at the end of the day, you don't think you're that bad. That God's not that good. And that the gulf between the two of you is not that far. Even if you've been a Christian a long time, I guarantee that at the end of the day, you, your eyes are semi-closed to a lot of what you wrestle with. And you think, you think mercy? I mean, does God really give me mercy? I mean, I know I'm not going to receive hell. Uh, but that seems to be about it. We receive mercy with every breath that we take. We receive mercy with every gift that we receive. We get mercy just in the fact we don't understand. You see, this is, this is where we fall because we tend to think that sin is about betraying a rule book. And when we betray a rule book, we're like, I mean, it's a book. But the, but the Bible paints betrayal in terms of adultery. I want you to think about that for a minute. Not, there's no such thing as like, I mean, I was a little bit adulterous, right? Oh, I just need a little... No, 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 no. Tell your spouse that. It was just a little bit of an affair. No. That, that brings out righteous anger, or should bring righteous anger out of the one betrayed. That's how the Bible posits sin, because it's a betrayal against God who has loved us with all of his being. And every time we break relationship with him, every time we turn from him to other saviors that we think will, will help us, we are in need of mercy. And so the idea of a God who is eager to show that mercy comes into beautiful and vivid relief in the person of Jesus. Jesus. Jesus came as the long-awaited answer to God's promise to deal with our sin. Because you and I blow it. Christian or not, we blow it. And we blow it all the time. And God is not surprised at that. That's why Jesus came. So he lived perfectly for us. So that there is no expectation of us to, to meet some standard. And he died sacrificially for us so that we might be reconciled to God. Which means that the who knows of the king of Nineveh has become in Jesus a whosoever will. We're no longer left to guess, maybe God will be merciful. Now there are faiths that do. like Muslims, perhaps Allah will be merciful. The beauty of the gospel is that we know whosoever will come to Jesus will find that mercy. You don't have to manipulate. You don't have to hope for the best. Jesus has done everything that is required so that all you need to do is bring to him your need if you're hesitant, if you think, I'm not sure this applies to me, can I tell you, it isn't God that's holding you back. It's you. Because God loves to show mercy. God loves to show mercy. But what about you? Do you love to show mercy? See, that's what we're about to get to in the next couple weeks. Next week, we're going to find out that Jonah, mm, nope, don't love him some mercy. He's angry enough to die that the fact that God gave mercy. We're going to hear that next week. What about you? You see, I get, I'm willing to bet we look at this story and we think, these people got off. And it makes us mad. Love mercy? No, no, no. No, we hate it. We want justice. And maybe for you that's because you've been wounded, Right? Some of us have been wounded deeply. We have deep scars. They run, they, they run to the core of who we are. And we don't want mercy for the person who's wounded. It's perfectly natural to understand. I, I get that. I get it. We want the person to pay. Maybe that's not you, though. Maybe you're the good one. You've always been the good one. You just want the recognition that you deserve. Because you've been the good one. Other people always seem to get recognition. Why is that? I just want my just desserts. right? I just want what's coming to me. Maybe it's just that you spend, you don't love mercy because you spend way too much time on your social media feed getting caught up in our culture of outrage. But let me just correct an assumption we have really quick Nineveh did not get off, Nineveh was overthrown. Think with me. One of the meanings of that word means turned on its head. Here is a city known for social injustice in which all of a sudden, every member of that city, rich, poor, king, uh, commoner, everybody, is in their burlap PJs sitting in ash. Everybody's the exact same at that moment. All of them are going without food because they're fasting. All of them are alike in their repentance. Everybody. The city has been overthrown. It's been overturned. The unthinkable has happened. They were overthrown. Just not how Jonah, and probably not how we, think it should have been. Because we think we know know best. I know how mercy should be given. I know how justice should be given. Because I see all ends. But we don't. Listen to me. You can't love mercy. You can't love showing mercy. Unless you first realize how much of a debtor to mercy you actually are. It's impossible. We want justice when we forget how much justice we deserve. Here's what I mean. That that person hurts you, sins against you, and you want justice. And look, to be quite quite honest, uh, God doesn't say that's wrong. Right? He just says, leave it to him. So we say we want justice. That's not wrong. But what if they repent? Oh, now we're in a pickle. Hmm. What do I do about that? Well, what we end up doing is we we begin thinking, well, well, it's not good enough. Their repentance isn't good enough. They don't really mean it. If they really meant it, it would be something else. I'm not sure what, but it would be something else. You see, out of our self-protection, we will always hold others to a higher standard than we do ourselves. So let me ask you a question. How perfect is your repentance? Because mine stinks. Mine stinks. I mean... I'm pretty good as you go along, but right at the gate, it's not very good. If love didn't cover over a multitude of sins, not just with the Lord, but also with others, I'd be done. I I have got to have Jesus. My only claim is Jesus. If God weren't merciful, I couldn't stand. Because not only is my obedience imperfect, my repentance is imperfect. When you realize how much you've been forgiven, then you can begin loving much. So listen to me. If you struggle showing mercy to others, if you're a grudge holder, I don't mean like you've been wounded and you need to work through that and work on reconciliation or just work through what's been done to you. I mean, if you're a grudge holder, like every slight just kind of gets held. You're looking for a recompense for everything. Your pound of flesh has got to be gotten for everything that is ever done. Maybe it's time to revisit the gospel. How much have you been forgiven? How imperfect is your repentance? How much have you been given that you did nothing for, but you take all the credit for? And I know that's particularly hard in our little context here, because most of us in this room think to ourselves, I worked really hard for everything I have, and I deserve it. But, like I always say, if you were born in 4th century Tibet, you would not be worrying about your two-car garage. You'd be worrying about your ox, and whether or not you were going to have food for the winter. And that, ha- that difference has nothing to do with how hard you worked. It had everything to do with the family you were born into, the nation you were born into, and the gifts you've been given. And none of that you had any control over. We are debtors to mercy. We are debtors to mercy. But here's the amazing thing about God. When we turn to Jesus, it isn't as if judgment doesn't happen. God will always judge sin. The question is, will he judge it in Jesus or will he judge it in us? That's the only question. And you can trust him with that. Look, I I know some of you have reason to be angry. I know some of you have great reason to want justice. I'm not speaking to that necessarily. God doesn't call us to pretend that that isn't true. He only calls us to trust him with that justice. And to love mercy not only for ourselves but for others too. Because, you see, most of us see God as this looming figure who's looking for a reason to judge us, standing over us. And when we become Christians, we tend to think that what happened was Jesus kind of pulled one over on him, and now it's like, ah. I really wanted to get you, but I can't get past Jesus to get you. Like, that's what it seems like to us. But God, the God presented here is not a God looking for reasons to judge you. He's looking for reasons and opportunities to have mercy on you. That's the God of the Bible. Can we refuse that mercy? Absolutely we can. But he's looking for opportunities to show it. So let me ask you a question. What if this church were the same? What if we were a people looking for opportunities to show mercy in word and in deed to other people? What if we were looking for opportunities, not just to show that to those within our doors, but outside as well? I can tell you this. I think for most people, if they were to see that, it would be completely unexpected. Would you pray with me? Lord, we recognize our need. No, we don't. No, that's not true, Lord. We don't recognize our need. We might see a piece of it. We don't see all of it. I would would ask you, in your your mercy, to show us our need for mercy. For those of us who have been Christians, remind us, maybe even during our time of confession, would you remind us of our need for that? As we come to your table, seeing that you are merciful and delighting in that. For those of us who aren't Christians yet, I pray that you would reveal that to us. Our need for mercy. But not just to see our need for mercy, but also how it's been provided for us in Christ. And as we do that, Lord, would you show us how much of a debtor to mercy we are so that we might go and be free with our mercy that we can give to others as well. Not pretending offenses didn't happen but being willing to love people through it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.